Good morning, friends and neighbors. This is an opportunity for me to talk about my own spiritual path. It's not unusual or uncommon, except that it's mine. But I hope it's a gift that might encourage you when it's your time and it's your place to share your spiritual path, because I think it can help us to see where we are being shaped and how in our lives we've been helped along the way. And I hope my sharing my path this morning can add something to how we understand the spirituality of our service. We use those words, service is our law. We think of ourselves as being in service to the community, to the planet, to the nation. But it's a chance to think about how did those pieces come together for me. And this morning, preparing for today, has been an incredible gift to me personally. I, uh, I start that spiritual journey in my home country, which is Georgia. Not the nation, but the state, um, which is where uh, my family and a whole lot of my family is from and is still there. And my uh, grandparents, and my grandparents are the sort of central feature in a lot of aspects of my younger life, but especially my grandmother, um, were the, the core of a very large family, Scots-Irish and, of course, Southern Baptist. And um, they had a little farm, and they manufactured mattresses on the farm, and my grandmother grew the flowers for her church and did a lot of the, the things that were needed in a church's life in terms of funerals and weddings. And uh, Nancy and I have dedicated today's flowers the gladiolus, which was sort of my grandmother's symbol to me. I saw the gladiolus here last Sunday and burst into tears. It was who she was. And sometimes there are smells in kitchens like cornbread and other things. But those are things that open up your heart and then help, help, help to remember that part of our lives. And my spiritual path starts there in Georgia, in those Southern Baptist churches, and there were a lot of things I could talk about, uh, not so much the theology necessarily, I was pretty young, but the experience of what it meant to build consciously faith community. I think from that part of my life, a lot of things I remember have to do with what you can, we can do better together, whether it's singing or healing or educating or being of support to each other. This was something that those Southern Baptists really knew and really knew deeply. And for my grandmother in particular, this little, she had a little Prince Albert box on the mantle. Some of you know who Prince Albert was and is, and, but it's just a little box for the, my grandfather's tobacco for his pipe. But she put in little bits of money because that was where they kept what they were going to give for the church as the church began each phase of its growth or building or repair but it was the understanding that we had to invest for the future in our spiritual community so it was there when we needed it for whatever that purpose was, joyous events and sad events with grief. But the notion of investing in that community was a really important part of that aspect of my spiritual journey. Another was the notion of unconditional love. There was a lot of grandkids and cousins and, uh, you know, 
we would get in trouble at different times. But my grandmother in particular had a way of expressing her religious belief through unconditional love that is powerful in my life yet today. There were, of course, other things about that part of my Baptist upbringing. Um, Gambling has a particular resonance for me, and and so it's kind of complicated and all kinds of things, but they stay with you. They stay with you. You can marry a New Yorker and have two different views on the lottery, and it works out. But these were deep experiences for me. And going to those Bible college, Bible camps in the summer and the revivals and the preaching and all of that also gave me a feeling of what emotional expression in the life of a community could look like. And it was really important. But at some point in my life, we moved north and the, the German side of the family, my father's side of the family, uh, the Methodist side of the family grew and we ended up in a little town in Iowa and we were very active in that church. My father was a lay leader but he had been active in um, uh, the Methodist church for a long time. And some of you know this, uh, there's a kind of an emphasis in the Methodist church around particularly organizing and outreach and um, evangelism. Uh, Some of you might at one point in your life, read that E.P. Thompson book, The Making of the English Working Class, but it's a long, very long history about, the, in a way, the Methodist church's role in organizing. But that little church emphasized especially helping young people find their place, empowerment, finding leadership, because there was such an emphasis on lay leadership. And I can remember as a junior high, I think maybe in ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade, um, we organized together uh, in our youth group a big bus trip to Omaha. Omaha was the big city if you lived in Nevada, Iowa, uh, to go see Billy Graham at a big revival at the racetrack. (laughs) It was a problem for me. But in any case, um, that experience had many parts visiting Boys Town and that statue that says he ain't heavy he's my my brother I mean to this day that's a heart opening thing that's a life of theology he ain't heavy he's my brother we also went to see West Side Story which was kind of eye opening for a little guy from a little town and I mean that was really something. I mean the big city went to the SAC Air Force Base and never heard anything quite that loud till the Brainerd Raceway but but Billy Graham and his ability to speak from the heart with words that move people from despair to hope from aimlessness to direction it was a powerful thing i got over the racetrack part at some point in that and i got into listening and it was a very very powerful powerful lesson for me but also that methodist faith and that faith community there also had a big emphasis on service um Every winter in January was Mission Month, and every Sunday night was Mission Sunday, and there were speakers from around the planet on things like soil erosion and hunger and um, food, and I mean things that were maybe little bits and pieces of um, of my life, but in my church, it put a big focus on that, and of course that whole period of 
becoming a junior high school and then a high schooler and then a young adult. And that was a very formative period. So to have service so deeply embedded in that religious, that faith community was incredibly important. And that emphasis on young people, whether it was youth camp or youth organizations or us being allowed to lead in a way our own activities, this was really crucial to me. But I um, left that part of my life and ventured through Alaska and down to California and fell madly in love with my wife, Nancy, and we adopted a daughter and we figured we better get to Minneapolis pretty soon if we were going to do that, and we did. And we were fortunate enough when we got here to find this faith community with some other friends and other uh, colleagues from places we came here. Some of us are here today. And in this faith community, there were many things that I can say did help guide how I understand public service and spirituality in public service. Some of you remember we had Paul Wellstone in our pulpit a number of times, and it changed my thinking about where does the role of elected public service fit into a broader question of public service. Paul challenged many of us in his life and in his death to think about how we were serving and what we were doing. But of course, you know, that was really, really important. But also in this church were strong voices about liberty and freedom, freedom particularly of a conscious of, re- of religious expression. You know, sometimes in the sermons, but often in the side conversations, we're extremely aware of the value that we as a people place on that ability to be free. We often say in our pulpit here and in our services, we don't all have to think alike, to love alike. And this notion of freedom and liberty has many aspects. And as I have been um, involved in my work, of course, I pay a little more attention to things like all the different places where Baptists were not allowed to vote. Catholics were not allowed to vote, be part of the process. Methodists were excluded from communities. I mean, there's all kinds of things in our Bill of Rights and in our Constitution that do reflect that desire, that belief that we share here about this freedom that's fundamental. And that's been real important. And, of course, we often talk about service here, and we see ourselves and we act in ways of service to the community. But the biggest contribution of my life in this faith community to my understanding of spirituality and service comes in the different path, the path of what is the role of that spirituality in keeping us whole and helping us get up the next morning when things aren't so good, when things have been tragic, when things have brought us grief and sadness in a deep way. And um, my way of understanding that took me a long time. But of course, when Rachel was killed and this community wrapped your arms around Nancy and I and helped us to live. It wasn't the first moment that I was thinking more about those aspects of spirituality, but it was the most powerful moment. But it's in the day-to-day now that I appreciate so much that part of spirituality helping to hold helping to hold us together sometimes in my day-to-day work gets a little rough 
what sometimes is thought of as contact sport gets converted into blood sport, and you know, it, it uh, it's part of part of the current moment. But but in this church, the ways that spiritual growth and looking inside, giving strength for looking outside, have been incredible, incredibly important to me in my own understanding of public service and in the way that I can take my spirituality into that public service. This church had its 150th birthday a couple years ago, and I was part of that process in a way, and all of us experienced and had that opportunity. And there was an aspect of that um, kind of spiritual reflection that was really important, and that was the part for me where looking back gave us a chance to remember and reappreciate those people who've gifted us this community. Building in space and things that we live and depend on. Thinking and process, John Cummins and others. The democracy, the, the fire of commitment to the principles that we have, all of these things are gifts that we've had, and we talk some about that in our 150th, but I do think it helped ground all of us, but I'll speak for myself, it helped ground me in the unending importance of that reflection on the gifts that we are dependent on, that we enjoy, that put us where we are today. We also, as a church, then take that and took that understanding to be a call to how we best steward these gifts today. Sometimes that's keeping the roof fixed and some things like that, but sometimes it's taking care to make sure that our community is finding its way to continue the fire of hope, the fire of commitment, to continue those feelings and to take that gift that we've received and making sure it's alive and vibrant in our whole community. But also it's an opportunity, to, again, to take that gift of the past but to place it into the future, to think about, well, what are we doing now for times we shall never see? And we often use that phrase somewhat, for times we shall never see. But I also became very, very aware of the need to continue to build and strengthen our spiritual or faith community for times we hope we will never see. But as human beings on this planet, we just might, we probably will. To have a church community there when Rachel was killed, because so many people had invested so much in building a community of love, that was a community that was built for a time, of course, that I hoped I would never see. But we are humans on this planet, and these are times that we do see. And so public service for me has those same elements that I feel and feel and experience in our faith community here. The necessity to keep remembering that what we have as a community in commons, the broad commons that we think of and talk about, is a gift from the past. Some things are good, some things aren't so good, but it's a gift and we need to understand that my public service my job and my role needs to be grounded in an understanding of that past. It needs to be heavily focused on being a good steward of my responsibilities right here and now. And it must have that component of thinking about the future and what can I, we be doing now so that the future has as much bright opportunity and possibility 
for those times we shall never see. And of course, these three elements help me each day to try to orient, but they also are an important part of the spirituality of getting up on mornings when you just don't want to get up or not responding in rage when that's something that's inside of you or not letting just anger or grief or other emotions take you away from standing on the side of love. We've had a lot of debate in our community about uh, you know elections, constitutional amendments, all that stuff, and there were people who wanted me to preach this morning on those things, and actually we're going to do a little workshop in a few weeks after church, so I want to urge you to come to that. But there are some elements in that public debate that have, uh, for me, been real signature in those aspects of my spirituality. Like, for example, understanding how did we find ourselves with these issues as part of a giant public debate. Some of you um, are aware that we have a couple constitutional amendments on the ballot. You know that. (laughs) Um, But you might not know how it turns out to be uh, how this happened. I mean, one thing that happened that uh, our church actually had a pretty interesting role in, to tell you the truth, which is that when the state became Minnesota, you couldn't become a state just on your own. You had to ask Congress, and you had to send them your paperwork, and that included a constitution. Democrats and Republicans got elected all over the state and showed up in St. Paul to write the constitution. They got into a big fist fight. Some people drew knives and guns, apparently. They split into two and wrote two constitutions. They were largely the same, and there are verbatim transcripts. If you're into this, I can help you. But um, <laughs> the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution were different in one most important way, and there's actually really incredible writing about this. But the Democrats wanted to take away what had existed in Minnesota as the regular practice of the right of freed African-American men to vote. The Democratic Constitution denied that explicitly. The Republicans wanted freed African-American men to vote. They thought they might get their votes, but it was also part of their commitment as Yankees, as liberals, as people who founded this church. And in that commitment, uh, there was a war, a battle, and they were all exhausted. And ultimately what happened was that the Republicans conceded to the demands of the Democrats to take away that right to vote of freed African-American men. But they got as a concession a very, very low bar for amending the Constitution, lowest at the time, remaining today almost the lowest in the nation. And then they spent 10 years and they tried three times and were ultimately successful in amending the Constitution to restore the right of free African-American men to vote. But there was a compromise made that made it so that our Constitution lent itself to some shenanigans over the years because it had this original uh, agreement that made it very, very easy. In fact, it was made slightly harder over time. It used to be it only took a majority plus one, a simple majority of those voting on a constitutional amendment. So we have history that's important to know because that can help then say, oh, so that's how we got into this situation.
But then we start to think, okay, well, that's where we are. Here's our situation. We have to, you know, make sure that we're doing a good job. And doing a, doing a good job, being a good steward, means making sure citizens kind of know what's on the ballot and what's going on. So that's an education task. That's a really now task. But what does it mean to say that in everything we do, our spirituality demands that we are thinking about and investing and dealing in ways that will make the future better? What does that mean? And I would argue that in this year, we have in one way, in one aspect, really discovered the way of investing in a spiritual way for our future. And that's those one-on-one conversations that many of you have been doing on Monday nights. Those are those phone calls, those standing in lines. Minnesota has been transformed and will be transformed in the future by the way that people have chosen to tackle and talk about these issues by the one-to-one conversation. But I just bring these examples up because in my day-to-day work, I'm trying to think about that spirituality and then how does that inform my work. But I want to say that another thing in my life is how often my work drags me and changes my spirituality fundamentally. And the best example for me, and this was kind of an extraordinary uh, opportunity, a gift, uh, uh, a life-changing event for me, Um, and that's what's happened around this U.S.-Dakota war, which we are right in the middle of the very beginnings of it 150 years ago. I chair the state Civil War Commemorative Task Force. The U.S.-Dakota war was in the middle of that, is considered part of the Civil War I honestly can say I dreaded the thought of how this year would unfold because of the deep wounding and the terrible conflict and the lack of any understanding and coming together and just the emotions around all of that are very powerful. And in each stage of my life, I've seen just how uh, unresolved and unhealed this situation is. So I just thought of this year was going to be really really hard. And somehow this little step-by-step of Minnesota people who think that healing and standing on the side of love is what life should be about has brought us to a new place. And two weekends ago, a whole group of us showed up in Pipestone on the border of the state of Minnesota and South Dakota And we were there when four grandmothers who were part of those Dakota people exiled from our state, those who were not exterminated and executed, who were expelled. And they walked across that state line, and the sheriff and the highway patrol shut the whole highway down, and came and greeted the four grandmothers who welcomed them home. And the love and the sort of larger community that came around that act of coming home was unbelievably powerful, and all of us were going, holy cow, something has happened. And then the day following, then we were at the church near Litchfield called Nest Church, which is where the first five victims of that war, the first five casualties, were brought and buried. And we were there with the families who had their descendants buried there and those who buried them. And we had this ceremony focused on healing, And the leader was a healer from the Dakota community, from Santi, from Nebraska, part of the exiles from there. 
And it was the largest gathering that had been ever in since that 150 years of those folks uh, coming back into that place. Every single person in those two different ceremonies in Pipestone, it was largely Dakota, hundreds of Dakota, and then some Europeans and others. At Nest Church, it was largely Germans and Danish and Swedish and Norwegians and, you know, all kinds, Icelanders, and some Dakota. So these were sort of different events, but they were of a whole. And in that moment there, people realized that something had changed, that at 150 years some pivot had happened, and that the seeds were being planted for a different kind of next year. And there were, there were spiritual uh, talks about how the white pine has a 300-year life, and it's at 150 years that you can begin to see. And there were other discussions, and it made me think about my church here and that we're at this 150 point, and what can we be doing, and how can we add to that healing? But then we got up to sing, and there were these Dakota um, honor songs. And then there was the one hymn, How Great Thou Art. He had an instrumental, a little bit of that. And every person there, all the Dakota and the Chippewa who were there and everybody knew this song and just belted it out there on the prairie, under those pine trees, by the gravesite, in the middle of a healing and purification ceremony. It was kind of unbelievable. And I, I, I was very moved by it for all kinds of reasons, and I didn't know them all at the moment. But I asked the, the medicine man, the spiritual leader who was leading this, this, uh, this day, and I said, how did everybody kind of know that song? He said, oh, it's in the Navajo hymnal. I said, oh, it's in the Navajo hymnal. Wow. So I, I, I was just kind of blown away by it, and I thought about it all the way home, and I got on the Internet. You remember the Internet? And... Sure enough, How Great Thou Art was from a Swedish man who was just moved and inspired one night. It got translated into German and then into Russian and then ultimately into English. Then it got translated into Maori and New Zealand and into Navajo and and everywhere. And on the internet, you can hear people singing this song from all kinds of languages from every corner of the planet. But then I began to remember that one of the reasons it so moved me was that it was so fundamental to my experience, my life, my spiritual community as a Southern Baptist. And then I remembered that it was the kind of opening hymn at that Billy Graham uh, revival. And I looked it up, and Billy Graham said the reason he chose that hymn each time is that it lifted people from thinking about themselves to thinking about creation to the broader world. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's what healing in a way is about. That whole aspect of us being able to keep our spirituality strong and make it deeper inside, and then we're able to be in the world and do service. It's keeping that balance between the two. It's finding the things that help us to get up in the morning and then give us that what it takes, whether it's those powder milk biscuits or whatever, (laughs) to do what's needed to be done. And I stood there under those pine trees, and I thought, I am here 
with these Dakota people, with these German people, with these Swedish people, and we are at a midpoint in some longer journey, and it's a spiritual journey, and that is why we have been able to make a fundamental shift in the wounding from that war, and we're able to plant the seeds for a healing that will certainly take another 150 years here in our church. We are always, and especially right now, planting the seeds of what we will do in this next period. We are standing on the side of love. And I decided that uh, summing up this spiritual path of my own that guides my public service was captured standing there with those Dakota and those Germans singing at the top of our lungs, how great thou art, and thinking about what's beyond us and doing it and how it brings us together. And I thought of my friend Tom Tipton and called him and asked him, would you come here? Would you help us be part of this? Would you help us recreate those Dakotas and German and Swedes standing under those trees? And I want to ask Tom to come and sing for us. But I want to ask everyone to stand up. And I want you to imagine that you are standing there under those pine trees with those Dakota people and those German people and those Swedish people with the sun coming down. And you are thinking, how did we find this path that gave us healing so we could stand there together 150 years after the worst possible conflict and come together as a people, and where does our spirituality and our faith give us the strength to do that? Tom will sing the main part of this. If you know the chorus, please join in, but please make yourself stand there under those trees on the prairie, by those graves, with those families, with those Dakota and everyone else, and feel what spirituality can do to keep service alive. Shouts of acclamation and take me home 
What joy shall fill my heart Then I shall bow In humble admiration And sing my God My God How great thou art Then Thank you. God bless.